CD8. Somewhere in the darkness, where the crowd was thinnest, the gaunt shape of Mr. Ixolite, the world's last surviving banshee, sidled up to the shaking building and bashfully shoved a note under the door. It said, Oo-ee-oo-ee-oo-ee-oo. The trolley ploughed to a very definitive stop. No one turned around. Reg said slowly, You're behind us, right? That's right, Mr. Shoe, said Schleppel happily. Should we worry when he's in front of us, said Ridcully, or is it worse because we know he's behind us? Ha ha, no more closets and cellars for this bogey, said Schleppel. That's a shame, because we've got some really big cellars at the university, said Windlepoons quickly. Schleppel was silent for a while. Then he said, in an exploratory tone of voice, How big? Huge. Yeah, with rats. Rats aren't the half of it. There's escaped demons and all sorts down there. Infested they are. What are you doing? hissed Ridcully. That's our cellars you're talking about. You'd prefer him under your bed, would you? murmured Windle. Or walking around behind you? Ridcully nodded briskly. Wow, yes, those rats are getting really out of hand down there, he said loudly. Some of them, oh, about two feet long, wouldn't you say, Dean? Three feet, said the Dean, at least. Fat as butter, too, said Windle. Schleppel gave this some thought. Well, all right, he said, reluctantly. Maybe I'll just wander in and have a look at them. The big store exploded and imploded at the same time, something it is almost impossible to achieve without a huge special effects budget or three spells all working against one another. There was the impression of a vast cloud expanding, but at the same time moving away so rapidly that the overall effect was of a shrinking point. Walls buckled and were sucked in. Soil ripped up from the ravaged fields and spiralled into the vortex. There was a violent burst of non-music which died almost instantly. And then nothing, except a muddy field. And floating down from the early morning sky like snow, thousands of white flakes. They slid silently through the air and landed lightly on the crowd. It's not seeding, is it? said Red Shoe. Windle grabbed one of the flakes. It was a crude rectangle, uneven and blotchy. It was just about possible with a certain amount of imagination to make out the words Close nig down slay Everythnig must og No, said Windle, probably not. He lay back and smiled. It was never too late to have a good life. And when no one was looking, the last surviving trolley on the Discworld rattled off sadly into the oblivion of the night, lost and alone. It is generally thought on those worlds where the mal-life form has seeded, that people take the wire baskets away and leave them in strange and isolated places, so that squads of young men have to be employed to gather them together and wheel them back. This is the exact opposite of the truth. In reality, the men are hunters, stalking their rattling prey across the landscape, trapping them, breaking their spirit, taming them, and herding them to a life of slavery. Possibly. Pog-a-groddle-fig. Miss Flitworth sat in her kitchen.
Outside, she could hear the despondent clanking as Ned Simnel and his apprentice picked up the tangled remains of the combination harvester. A handful of other people were theoretically helping, but were really taking the opportunity to have a good look around. She'd made a tray of tea and left them to it. Now she sat with her chin in her hands, staring at nothing. There was a knock at the open door. Spigot poked his red face into the room. Please, Miss Flitworth. Hmm? Please, Miss Flitworth, there's a skeleton of a horse walking around in the barn. It's eating hay. How? And it's falling through. Really? We'll keep it, then. At least it'll be cheap to feed. Spigot hung around for a while, twisting his hat in his hands. You all right, Miss Flitworth? You all right, Mr Poons? Windle stared at nothing. Windle? said Red Shoe. Mm-hmm. The Arch-Chancellor just asked if you wanted a drink. He'd like a glass of distilled water, said Mrs Cake. What, just water? said Red Cully. That's what he wants, said Mrs Cake. I'd like a glass of distilled water, please, said Windle. Mrs Cake looked smug. At least as much of her as was visible looked smug, which was that part between the hat and her handbag, which was a sort of counterpart of the hat and so big that when she sat clasping it on her lap, she had to reach up to hold the handles. When she'd heard that her daughter had been invited to the university, she'd come too. Mrs Cake always assumed that an invitation to Ludmilla was an invitation to Ludmilla's mother as well. Mothers like her exist everywhere, and apparently nothing can be done about them. The fresh starters were being entertained by the wizards, and trying to look as though they were enjoying it. It was one of those problematical occasions with long silences, sporadic coughs, and people saying isolated things like, Well, isn't this nice? You looked a bit lost there, Windle, for a moment, said Ridcully. I'm just a bit, um, tired, Arch-Chancellor. I thought you zombies never slept. I'm still tired, said Windle. You're sure you wouldn't like us to have another go with the burial and everything? We could do it properly this time. Thank you all the same, but no, I'm just not cut out for the undead life, I think. Windle looked at Red Shoe. Sorry about that. I don't know how you manage it, he grinned apologetically. You've got every right to be alive or dead, just as you choose, said Reg severely. One man bucket says people are dying properly again, said Mrs Cake, so you could probably get an appointment. Windle looked around. She's taken your dog for a walk, said Mrs Cake. Where's Ludmilla? he said. Windle smiled awkwardly. Mrs Cake's premonitions could be very wearing. It'd be nice to know that Lupine was being looked after if I went, he said. I wonder... Could you take him in? Well, said Mrs Cake uncertainly, but he's... Red Shoe began and then saw Windle's expression. I must admit it'd be a relief to have a dog around the place, said Mrs Cake. I'm always worrying about Ludmilla. There's a lot of strange people around. But your daughter... Reg began again. Shut up, Reg, said Doreen. That's all settled then, said Windle. And have you got any trousers? What? Any trousers in the house? 
Well, I suppose I've got some that belong to the later Mr. Cake, but why? Sorry, said Wendell. My mind was wandering. Don't know what I'm saying half the time. Ah, said Reg brightly. I see. What you're saying is that when he... Doreen nudged him viciously. Oh, said Reg. Sorry, don't mind me. I'd forget my own head if it wasn't sewn on. Windle leaned back and shut his eyes. He could hear the occasional scrap of conversation. He could hear Arthur Winkings asking the Arch-Chancellor who did his decorating and where the university got its vegetables. He heard the bursar moaning about the cost of exterminating all the curse words, which had somehow survived the recent changes and had taken up residence in the darkness of the roof. He could even, if he strained his perfect hearing, hear the whoops of Schleppel in the distant cellars. They didn't need him. At last. The world didn't need Windle Poons. He got up quietly and lurched to the door. I'm just going out, he said. I may be some time. Ridcully gave him a half-hearted nod and concentrated on what Arthur had to say about how the Great Hall could be entirely transformed with some pine-effect wallpaper. Windle shut the door behind him and leaned against the thick, cool wall. Oh, yes, there was one other thing. Are you there, one-man bucket? he said softly. How did you know? You're generally around. <laughs> You've caused some real trouble there. You know what's going to happen next full moon? Yes, I do. And I think somehow that they do, too. But he'll become a wolf-man. Yes, and she'll become a wolf-woman. All right, but what kind of relationship can people have one week in four? Maybe at least as good a chance of happiness as most people get. Life isn't perfect, one man bucket. You are telling me. Now, can I ask you a personal question, said Windle? I mean, I've just got to know. Hmm? Huh? After all, you've got the astral plane to yourself again. Oh, all right. Why are you called one man? Is that all? I thought you could work that one out, a clever man like you. In my tribe we're traditionally named after the first thing the mother sees when she looks out of the teepee after the birth. It's short for one man pouring a bucket of water over two dogs. That's, um, pretty unfortunate, said Windle. It's not too bad, said one man bucket. It was me twin brother you had to feel sorry for. She looked out ten seconds before me to give him his name. Windlepoons thought about it. Don't tell me. Let me guess, he said. Two dogs fighting? Two dogs fighting? Two dogs fighting? said one man bucket. Wow, he'd have given his right arm to be called two dogs fighting. It was later that the story of Windle Poons really came to an end, if story means all that he did and caused and set in motion. In the Ramtop village, where they danced the real Morris dance, for example, they believe that no one is finally dead until the ripples they cause in the world die away, until the clock he wound up winds down, until the wine she made has finished its ferment, until the crop they planted is harvested. The span of someone's life, they say, is only the core of their actual existence. 
as he walked through the foggy city to an appointment he'd been awaiting ever since he was born, Windle felt that he could predict that final end. It would be in a few weeks' time when the moon was full again, a sort of codicil or addendum to the life of Windle Poons, born in the year of the significant triangle in the century of the three lice. He'd always preferred the old calendar with its ancient names to all this new-fangled numbering they did today, and died in the year of the notional serpent in the century of the fruit bat, more or less. There'd be two figures running across the high moorland under the moon, not entirely wolves, not entirely human. With any luck, they'd have the best of both worlds. Not just feeling, but knowing. Always best to have both worlds. Death sat in his chair in his dark study, his hands steepled in front of his face. Occasionally he'd swivel the chair backwards and forwards. Albert brought him in a cup of tea and exited with diplomatic soundlessness. There was one lifetimer left on Death's desk. He stared at it. Swivel, 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 swivel. In the hall outside, the great clock ticked on, killing time. Death drummed his skeletal fingers on the desk's scarred woodwork. In front of him, stacked up with impromptu bookmarks in their pages, were the lives of some of the Discworld's great lovers. Their fairly repetitive experiences hadn't been any help at all. The most enthusiastic of these was the small but persistent and incredibly successful Casanunda the Dwarf, a name mentioned with respect and awe wherever stepladder owners are gathered together. He got up and stalked to a window and stared out at his dark domain, his hands clenching and unclenching behind his back. Then he snatched up the lifetimer and strode out of the room. Binky was waiting in the warm fug of the stables. Death saddled him quickly and led him out into the courtyard and then rode up into the night, towards the distant glittering jewel of the Discworld. He touched down silently in the farmyard at sunset. He drifted through a wall. He reached the foot of the stairs. He raised the hourglass and watched the draining of time. And then he paused. There was something he had to know. Bill Dore had been curious about things, and he could remember everything about being Bill Dore. He could look at emotions laid out like trapped butterflies pinned on cork under glass. Bill Dore was dead, or at least had ceased his brief existence. But, what was it, someone's actual life was only the core of their real existence? Bill Dore had gone, but he had left echoes. The memory of Bill Dore was owed something. Death had always wondered why people put flowers on graves. It made no sense to him. The dead had gone beyond the scent of roses, after all. But now, it wasn't that he felt he understood, but at least he felt that there was something there capable of understanding. In the curtained blackness of Miss Flitworth's parlour, a darker shape moved through the darkness, heading towards the three chests on the dresser. Death opened one of the smaller ones. It was full of gold coins. They had an untouched look about them. He tried the other small chest. It was also full of gold. He'd expected something more from Miss Flitworth, although probably not even Bill Dore would have known what. He tried the large chest. There was a layer of tissue paper. Under the paper, some white silky thing, some sort of a veil, now yellowed and brittle with age. He gave it an uncomprehending stare and laid it aside. There were some white shoes. Quite impractical for farm wear, he felt. No wonder they'd been packed away. There was more paper, a bundle of letters tied together. He put them on top of the veil. 
There was never anything to be gained from observing what humans said to one another. Language was just there to hide their thoughts. And then there was, right at the bottom, a smaller box. He pulled it out and turned it over and over in his hands. Then he unclicked the little latch and lifted the lid. Clockwork, word. The tune wasn't particularly good. Death had heard all the music that had ever been written, and almost all of it had been better than this tune. It had a plinkety-plonkety quality, a tinny little one-two-three rhythm. In the musical box, over the busily spinning gears, two wooden dancers jerked around in a parody of a waltz. Death watched them until the clockwork ran down. Then he read the inscription. It had been a present. Beside him, the lifetimer poured its grains into the bottom bulb. He ignored it. When the clockwork ran down, he wound it up again. Two figures spinning through time. And when the music stopped, all you needed was to turn the key. When it ran down again, he sat in the silence of the dark and reached a decision. There were only seconds left. Seconds had meant a lot to Bill Dor, because he'd had a limited supply. They meant nothing at all to death, who'd never had any. He left the sleeping house, mounted up and rode away. The journey took an instant that would have taken mere light 300 million years, but death travels inside that space where time has no meaning. Light thinks it travels faster than anything, but it's wrong. No matter how fast light travels, it finds the darkness has always got there first and is waiting for it. There was company on the ride. Galaxies, stars, ribbons of shining matter, streaming and eventually spiralling towards the distant goal. Death on his pale horse moved down the darkness like a bubble on a river. And every river flows somewhere. And then, below, a plain. Distance was as meaningless here as time, but there was a sense of hugeness. The plain could have been a mile away or a million miles. It was marked by long valleys or rills, which flowed away to either side as he got closer and landed. He dismounted and stood in the silence. Then he went down on one knee, changed the perspective. The furrowed landscape falls away into immense distances, curves at the edges, becomes a fingertip. Azrael raised his finger to a face that filled the sky, lit by the faint glow of dying galaxies. There are a billion deaths, but they are all aspects of the one death. Azrael, the great attractor, the death of universes, the beginning and end of time. Most of the universe is made up of dark matter, and only Azrael knows who it is. Eyes so big that a supernova would be a mere suggestion of a gleam on the iris turned slowly and focused on the tiny figure on the immense walled plains of his fingertips. Beside Azrael, the big clock hung in the centre of the entire web of the dimensions and ticked onwards. Stars glittered in Azrael's eyes. The death of the Discworld stood up. Lord, I ask for... Three of the servants of Oblivion slid into existence alongside him. One said, Do not listen, he stands accused of meddling. One said, And morticide. One said, And pride, and living with intent to survive. One said, And siding with chaos against good order. Azrael raised an eyebrow. The servants drifted away from death expectantly. Lord! We know there is no good order except that which we create. Azrael's expression did not change. There is no hope but us. There is no mercy but us. There is no justice. There is just us. The dark, sad face filled the sky. 
All things that are, are ours. But we must care, for if we do not care, we do not exist. If we do not exist, then there is nothing but blind oblivion. And even oblivion must end some day. Lord, will you grant me just a little time, for the proper balance of things, to return what was given, for the sake of prisoners and the flight of birds? Death took a step backwards. It was impossible to read the expression in Azrael's features. Death glanced sideways at the servants. Lord, what can the harvest hope for if not for the care of the reaper man? He waited. Lord, said Death. In the time it took to answer, several galaxies unfolded, whirled around Azrael like paper streamers, impacted and were gone. Then Azrael said, Yes! And another finger reached out across the darkness towards the clock. There were faint screams of rage from the servants, and then screams of realisation, and then three brief blue flames. All other clocks, even the handless clock of death, were reflections of the clock. Exactly reflections of the clock. They told the universe what the time was, but the clock told time what time is. It was the mainspring from which all time poured. And the design of the clock was this, that the biggest hand only went around once. The second hand whirred along a circular path that even light would take days to travel, forever chased by the minutes, hours, days, months, years, centuries and ages. But the universe hand went around once. At least, until someone wound up the clockwork, and death returned home with a handful of time. A shop bell jangled. Druto Pole, florist, looked over a spray of Floribunda Mrs. Shover. Someone was standing among the vases of flowers. They looked slightly indistinct. In fact, even afterwards, Druto was never sure who had been in his shop and how his words had actually sounded. He oiled forward, rubbing his hands. How may I help? Flowers. Druto hesitated only for a moment. And the um, destination for these? Um... A lady. And do you have any preference? Lilies. Ah. Are you sure that um, lilies are... I like lilies. Um, it's just that lilies are a little bit sombre... I like sombre. The figure hesitated. What do you recommend? Druto slipped smoothly into gear. Roses are always very well received, he said, or orchids. Many gentlemen these days tell me that ladies find a single specimen orchid more acceptable than a bunch of roses. Give me lots. Would that be orchids or roses? Both. Druto's fingers twined sinuously like eels in grease. And I wonder if I could interest you in these marvellous sprays of Nervosa Gloriosa. Lots of them. And if Sir's budget would stretch, may I suggest a single specimen of the extremely rare... Yes. And possibly... Yes. Everything. With a ribbon. When the shop bell had jangled the purchaser out, Druto looked at the coins in his hand. Many of them were corroded, all of them were strange, and one or two were golden. 
Um, he said, that will do nicely. He became aware of a soft pattering sound. Around him, all over the shop, petals were falling like rain. And these? That's our deluxe assortment, said the lady in the chocolate shop. It was such a high-class establishment that it sold not sweets but confectionery, often in the form of individual gold-wrapped swirly things that made even larger holes in a bank balance than they did in a tooth. The tall, dark customer picked up a box that was about two feet square. On a lid like a satin cushion, it had a picture of a couple of hopelessly cross-eyed kittens looking out of a boot. What for is this box padded? Is it to be sat on? Can it be that it is... Cat-flavoured, he added, his tone taking on a definite menace, or rather more menace than it had already. Um, no, that's our supreme assortment. The customer tossed it aside. No. The shopkeeper looked both ways and then pulled open a drawer under the counter, at the same time lowering her voice to a conspiratorial whisper. Of course, she said, for that very special occasion... It was quite a small box. It was also entirely black, except for the name of the contents in small white letters. Cats, even in pink ribbons, wouldn't be allowed within a mile of a box like this. To deliver a box of chocolates like this, dark strangers drop from chairlifts and abseil down buildings. The dark stranger peered at the lettering. Dark enchantments, he said. I like it. For those... Intimate moments, said the lady. The customer appeared to consider the relevance of this. Yes, that seems appropriate. The shopkeeper beamed. Shall I wrap them up then? Yes, with a ribbon. And will there be anything else, sir? The customer seemed to panic. Else? Should there be anything else? Is there something else? What is it that should be done? Um, I'm sorry, sir. A present for a lady. The shopkeeper was left a little adrift by this sudden turning of the tide of conversation. She swam towards a reliable cliché. Well, they do say, don't they, that diamonds are a girl's best friend, she said brightly. Diamonds? Oh, diamonds. Is that so? They glittered like bits of starlight on a black velvet sky. Uh, this one, said the merchant, is a particularly excellent stone, don't you think? Note the fire, the exceptional... How friendly is it? The merchant hesitated. He knew about carrots, about adamantine luster, about water and make and fire but he'd never before been called upon to judge gems in terms of general affability. Quite, uh, well-disposed, he hazarded. No. The merchant's fingers seized on another splinter of frozen light. Now, uh, this, he said, confidence flowing back into his voice, is from the famous Shortshanks mine. May I draw your attention to the exquisite... He felt the penetrating stare drill through the back of his head. But not, I must admit, noted for its friendliness, he said lamely. The dark customer looked disapprovingly around the shop. In the gloom, behind troll-proof bars, gems glowed like the eyes of dragons in the back of a cave. 
Are any of these friendly? he said. Sir, I think I can say, without fear of contradiction, that we have never based our purchasing uh, policy on the amiability of the stones in question, said the merchant. He was uncomfortably aware that things were wrong, and that somewhere in the back of his mind he knew what was wrong with them, and that somehow his mind was not letting him make that final link, and it was getting on his nerves. Where is the biggest diamond in the world? The biggest? Uh, that's easy. It's the Tear of Ofla. It's in the innermost sanctuary of the lost jeweled temple of doom of Ofla the crocodile god in darkest Hoandaland, and it weighs 850 carats. And, sir, to forestall your next question, I personally would go to bed with it. One of the nice things about being a priest in the lost jewelled temple of doom of Ofla the crocodile god was that you got to go home early most afternoons. This was because it was lost. Most worshippers never found their way there. They were the lucky ones. Traditionally, only two people ever went into the innermost sanctuary. They were the high priest and the other priest who wasn't high. They had been there for years and took turns at being the high one. It was an undemanding job, given that most prospective worshippers were impaled, squashed, poisoned or sliced by booby traps, even before making it as far as the little box and the jolly drawing of a thermometer outside the vestry. Lost jewelled temple roof repair fund, only 6,000 gold pieces to go. Please give generously. Thank you. They were playing Cripple Mr Onion on the high altar, beneath the very shadow of the jewel-encrusted statue of Offler himself, when they heard the distant creak of the main door. The high priest didn't look up. Eh, up, he said. Another one for the big rolling ball, then? There was a thump and a rumbling grinding sound, and then a very final bang. Now, said the high priest, what was the stake? Two pebbles, said the low priest. Right, the high priest peered at his cards. OK, I'll see your two pebbles. There was the faint sound of footsteps. "'Chap with a whip got as far as the big sharp spikes last week,' said the low priest. "'There was a sound like the flushing of a very old dry lavatory.' "'The footsteps stopped. "'The high priest smiled to himself. "'Right,' he said. "'See your two pebbles and raise your two pebbles.' "'The low priest threw down his cards. "'Double onion,' he said. "'The high priest looked down suspiciously. "'The low priest consulted a scrap of paper.' That's 300,964 pebbles you owe me, he said. There was the sound of footsteps. The priests exchanged glances. Haven't had one for poison dart alley for quite some time, said the high priest. Five says he makes it, said the low priest. You're on. There was a faint clatter of metal points on stone. It's a shame to take your pebbles. There were footsteps again. All right, but there's still the a creak, a splash, the crocodile tank. There were footsteps. No one's ever got past the dreadful guardian of the portals. The priests looked into one another's horrified faces. Hey, said the one who was not high, you don't think it could be... Here? Oh, come on, we're in the middle of a god's damn jungle. The high priest tried to smile. There's no way it could be... The footsteps got nearer. The priests clutched at one another in terror. Mrs. Cake! The doors exploded inwards. 
A dark wind drove into the room, blowing out the candles and scattering the cards like polka-dot snow. The priests heard the chink of a very large diamond being lifted out of its socket. Thank you. After a while, when nothing else seemed to be happening, the priest who wasn't high managed to find a tinderbox and after several false starts got a candle alight. The two priests looked up through the dancing shadows at the statue, where a hole now gaped that should have contained a very large diamond. After a while, the high priest sighed and said, Well, look at it like this, apart from us, who's going to know? Yeah, never thought of it like that. Hey, can I be high priest tomorrow? It's not your turn until Thursday. Oh, come on. The high priest shrugged and removed his high priesting hat. It's very depressing, this kind of thing, he said, glancing up at the ravaged statue. Some people just don't know how to behave in a house of religion. Death sped across the world, landing once again in the farmyard. The sun was on the horizon when he knocked on the kitchen door. Miss Flitworth opened it, wiping her hands on her apron. She grimaced short-sightedly at the visitor and then took a step back. Bill Dor, you gave me quite a start. I have brought you some flowers. She stared at the dry, dead stems. Also some chocolate assortment, the sort ladies like. She stared at the black box. Also, here is a diamond to be friends with you. It caught the last rays of the setting sun. Miss Flitworth finally found her voice. Bill Dor, what are you thinking of? I have come to take you away from all this. You have? Where to? Death hadn't thought this far. Where would you like? I ain't proposing to go anywhere tonight except to the dance, said Miss Flitworth firmly. Death hadn't planned for this either. What is this dance? Harvest dance, you know, it's tradition. When the harvest is in, it's a sort of a celebration, and like a thanksgiving. Thanksgiving to who? Dunno. No one in particular, I reckon. Just general thankfulness, I suppose. I had planned to show you marvels, fine cities, anything you wanted. Anything? Yes. Then we're going to the dance, Bill Doer. I always go every year. They rely on me. You know how it is. Yes, Miss Flitworth. He reached out and took her hand. What? You mean now? She said. I'm not ready. Look. She looked down at what she was suddenly wearing. That's not my dress. It's got all glitter on it. Death sighed. The great lovers of history had never encountered Miss Flitworth. Cassanander would have handed in his stepladder. They're diamonds. A king's ransom in diamonds. Which king? Any king. Cool. Binky walked easily along the road to the town. After the length of infinity, a mere dusty road was a bit of relief. Sitting side-saddle behind death, Miss Flitworth explored the rustling contents of the box of dark enchantments. Yeah, she said. Someone's had all the rum truffles. There was another crackle of paper. And from the bottom layer, too. I hate that. People starting the bottom layer before the top one's been properly finished. And I can tell you've been doing it because there's a little map in the lid. And by rights there should be rum truffles. Bill Door? I'm sorry, Miss Flitworth. This big diamond's a bit heavy. Nice, though, she added, grudgingly. 
Where'd you get it? From people who thought it was the tear of a god. And is it? No, gods never weep. It is common carbon that has been subject to great heat and pressure, that is all. Inside every lump of coal there's a diamond waiting to get out, right? Yes, Miss Flitworth. There was no sound for a while, except the clip-clop of Binky's hooves. Then Miss Flitworth said, archly, I do know what's going on, you know. I saw how much sand there was. And so you thought, she's not a bad old stick. I'll show her a good time for a few hours. And then when she's not expecting it, it'll be time for the old cut de grass. Am I right? Death said nothing. I am right, aren't I? I can't hide anything from you, Miss Flitworth. Hm, I suppose I should be flattered, yes? I expect you've got a lot of calls on your time. More than you could possibly imagine, Miss Flitworth. In the circumstances, then, you might as well go back to calling me Renata again. There was a bonfire in the meadow beyond the archery field. Death could see figures moving in front of it. An occasional tortured squeak suggested that someone was tuning up a fiddle. I always come along to the harvest dance, said Miss Flitworth, conversationally. Not to dance, of course. I generally look after the food and so on. Why? Well, someone's got to look after the food. I meant, why don't you dance? Cos I'm old, that's why. You are as old as you think you are. <laughs> yeah, really? That's the kind of stupid thing people always say. They always say, my word, you're looking well. They say, there's life in the old dog yet. Many a good tune played on an old fiddle. That kind of stuff, it's all stupid. As if being old was some kind of thing you should be glad about. As if being philosophical about it will earn you marks. My head knows how to think young, but my knees aren't that good at it. Or my back. Or my teeth. Try telling my knees they're as old as they think they are and see what good it does you. Or them. It may be worth a try. More figures moved in front of the firelight. Death could see striped poles strung with bunting. The lads usually bring a couple of barn doors down here and nail them together for a proper floor, observed Miss Flitworth. Then everyone could join in. Folk dancing, said Death wearily. No, we have some pride, you know. Sorry. Hey, it's Bill Dorr, isn't it? said a figure looming out of the dusk. It's good old Bill. Hey, Bill! Death looked at a circle of guileless faces. Hello, my friends. We heard you gone away, said Duke Bottomley. He glanced at Miss Flitworth as Death helped her down from the horse. His voice faltered a bit as he tried to analyse the situation. You're looking very, very sparkly tonight, Miss Flitworth, he finished gallantly. The air smelled of warm, damp grass. An amateur orchestra was still setting up under an awning. There were trestle tables covered with the kind of food that's normally associated with the word repast. Pork pies like varnished military fortifications, vats of demonical pickled onions, jacket potatoes wallowing in a cholesterol ocean of melted butter. Some of the local elders had already established themselves on the benches provided and were chewing stoically, if toothlessly, through the food with the air of people determined to sit there all night if necessary. Nice to see the old people enjoying themselves, said Miss Flitworth. Death looked at the eaters. Most of them were younger than Miss Flitworth. 
There was a giggle from somewhere in the scented darkness beyond the firelight. And the young people, Miss Flitworth added evenly. We used to have a saying about this time of year. Let's see, something like, corn be ripe, nuts be brown, petticoats up, something. She sighed. Don't time fly, eh? Yes. You know, Bill Dorr, maybe you were right about the power of positive thinking. I feel a lot better tonight. Yes? Miss Flitworth looked speculatively at the dance floor. I used to be a great dancer when I was a girl. I could dance anyone off their feet. I could dance down the moon. I could dance the sun up. She reached up and removed the bands that held her hair in its tight bun and shook it out in a waterfall of white. I take it you do dance, Mr Bildore? Famed for it, Miss Flitworth. Under the band's awning, the lead fiddler nodded to his fellow musicians, stuck his fiddle under his chin and pounded on the boards with his foot. How one, how two, how one, two, three, four. Picture a landscape with the orange light of a crescent moon drifting across it and down below a circle of firelight in the night. There were the old favourites, the square dances, the reels, the whirling, intricate measures which, if the dancers had carried lights, would have traced out topological complexities beyond the reach of ordinary physics, and the sort of dances that led perfectly sane people to shout out things like do si do and och I without feeling massively ashamed for quite a long time. When the casualties were cleared away, the survivors went on to polka, mazurka, foxtrot, turkey trot, and trot a variety of other birds and beasts, and then to those dances where people form an arch and other people dance down it, which are incidentally generally based on folk memories of executions, and other dances where people form a circle, which are now generally based on folk memories of plagues. Through it all, two figures whirled, as though there was no tomorrow. The lead fiddler was dimly aware that, when he paused for breath, a spinning figure tap-danced a storm out of the melee, and a voice by his ear said, You will continue. I promise you. When he flagged a second time, a diamond as big as his fist landed on the boards in front of him. A small figure sashayed out of the dancers and said, If you boys don't go on playing, William Spigot, I will personally make sure your life becomes absolutely foul. And it returned to the press of bodies. The fiddler looked down at the diamond. It could have ransomed any five kings the world would care to name. He kicked it hurriedly behind him. More power to your elbow, eh? said the drummer, grinning. Shut up and play. He was aware that tunes were turning up at the ends of his fingers that his brain had never known. The drummer and the piper felt it too. Music was pouring in from somewhere. They weren't playing it. It was playing them. It is time for a new dance to begin. Jerum dum dum hummed the fiddler, the sweat running off his chin as he was caught up in a different tune. The dancers milled around uncertainly, unsure about the steps, but one pair moved purposefully through them at a predatory crouch, arms clasped ahead of them like the bowsprit of a killer galleon. At the end of the floor they turned in a flurry of limbs that appeared to defy normal anatomy and began the angular advance back through the crowd. What's this one called? Tango. Can you get put in prison for it? I don't believe so. Amazing. The music changed. I know this one. It's the Kermish bullfight dance. Oh, lay. With milk? A high-speed fusillade of hollow snapping noises suddenly kept time with the music. Who's playing the maracas? Death grinned. Maracas? 
I don't need maracas. And then it was now. The moon was a ghost of itself on one horizon. On the other, there was already the distant glow of the advancing day. They left the dance floor. Whatever had been propelling the band through the hours of the night drained slowly away. They looked at one another. Spigot the fiddler glanced down at the jewel. It was still there. The drummer tried to massage some life back into his wrists. Spigot stared helplessly at the exhausted dancers. Well then, he said, and raised his fiddle one more time. Miss Flitworth and her companion listened from the mists that were threading around the field in the dawn light. Death recognised the slow, insistent beat. It made him think of wooden figures whirling through time until the spring unwound. I don't know that one. It's the last waltz. I suspect there's no such thing. You know, said Miss Flitworth, I've been wondering all evening how it's going to happen, how you're going to do it. I mean, people have to die of something, don't they? I thought maybe it was going to be of exhaustion, but I've never felt better. I've had the time of me life and I'm not even out of breath. In fact, it's been a real tonic, Bill Dore, and I... She stopped. I'm not breathing, am I? It wasn't a question. She held a hand in front of her face and huffed on it. No. I see. I've never enjoyed myself so much in all me life. So, when? You know, when you said that seeing me gave you quite a start? Yes. It gave you quite a stop. Miss Flitworth didn't appear to hear him. She kept turning her hand backwards and forwards, as if she'd never seen it before. I see you made a few changes, Bill Doer, she said. No, it is life that makes many changes. I mean that I appear to be younger. That's what I meant also. He snapped his fingers. Binky stopped his grazing by the hedge and trotted over. You know, said Miss Flitworth, I've often thought, I often thought that everyone has their, you know, natural age. You see, children of ten who act as though they're thirty-five. Some people are born middle-aged, even. It'd be nice to think I've been... She looked down at herself. Oh, let's say, eighteen, all me life, inside. Death said nothing. He helped her up onto the horse. When I see what life does to people, you know, you don't seem so bad, she said nervously. Death made a clicking noise with his teeth. Binky walked forward. You've never met life, have you? I can say in all honesty that I have not. Probably some great white crackling thing, like an electric storm in trousers, said Miss Flitworth. I think not. Binky rose up into the morning sky. Anyway, death to all tyrants, said Miss Flitworth. Yes. Where are we going? Binky was galloping, but the landscape did not move. That's a pretty good horse you've got there, said Miss Flitworth, her voice shaking. Yes. But uh, what is he doing? Getting up speed. But we're not going anywhere. They vanished. They reappeared. The landscape was snow and green ice on broken mountains. These weren't old mountains, worn down by time and weather and full of gentle ski slopes, but young, sulky, adolescent mountains. They held secret ravines and merciless crevices. One yodel out of place would attract not the jolly echo of a lonely goat herd, but fifty tons of express delivery snow. 
The horse landed on a snowbank that should not by rights have been able to support it. Death dismounted and helped Miss Flitworth down. They walked over the snow to a frozen muddy track that hugged the mountainside. "'Why are we here?' said the spirit of Miss Flitworth. "'I do not speculate on cosmic matters. "'I mean, here on this mountain, here on this geography,' said Miss Flitworth patiently. "'This is not geography.' "'What is it, then?' "'History.' They rounded a bend in the track. There was a pony there, eating a bush, with a pack on its back. The track ended in a wall of suspiciously clean snow. Death removed a lifetimer from the recesses of his robe. "'Now!' he said, and stepped into the snow. She watched it for a moment, wondering if she could have done that too. Solidity was an awfully hard habit to give up. And then she didn't have to. Someone came out. Death adjusted Binky's bridle and mounted up. He paused for a moment to watch the two figures by the avalanche. They had faded almost to invisibility, their voices no more than textured air. All he said was, wherever you go, you go together. I said, where? He said he didn't know. What's happened? Rufus, you're going to find this very hard to believe, my love. And who was that masked man? They both looked round. There was no one there. In the village in the Ramtops, where they understand what the Morris dance is all about, they dance it just once, at dawn, on the first day of spring. They don't dance it after that, all through the summer. After all, what would be the point? What use would it be? But on a certain day, when the nights are drawing in, the dancers leave work early and take from attics and cupboards the other costume, the black one, and the other bells. And they go by separate ways to a valley among the leafless trees. They don't speak. There is no music. It's very hard to imagine what kind there could be. The bells don't ring. They're made of octiron, a magic metal. But they're not precisely silent bells. Silence is merely the absence of noise. They make the opposite of noise, a sort of heavily textured silence. And in the cold afternoon, as the light drains from the sky among the frosty leaves and in the damp air, they dance the other Morris, because of the balance of things. You've got to dance both, they say. Otherwise, you can't dance either. Windle Poons wandered across the brass bridge. It was the time in Ankh Morpork's day when the night people were going to bed and the day people were waking up. For once, there weren't many of either around. Windle had felt moved to be here at this place on this night now. It wasn't exactly the feeling he'd had when he knew he was going to die. It was more the feeling that a cogwheel gets inside a clock. Things turn, the spring unwinds, and this is where you've got to be. He stopped and leaned over. The dark water, or at least very runny mud, sucked at the stone supports. There was an old legend, what was it now? If you threw a coin into the ark from the brass bridge, you'd be sure to return. Or was it if you just threw up in the ark? Probably the former. Most of the citizens, if they dropped a coin into the river, would be sure to come back, if only to look for the coin. A figure loomed out of the mist. He tensed. Morning, Mr. Poons. Windle let himself relax. Oh, Sergeant Coulon, I thought you were someone else. Just me, your lordship, said the watchman cheerfully. Turning up like a bad copper. I see the bridge has got through another night without being stolen, Sergeant. Well done. You can't be too careful, I always say. 
I'm sure we citizens can sleep safely in one another's beds, knowing that no one can make off with a five-thousand-ton bridge overnight, said Windle. Unlike Modo the dwarf, Sergeant Colon did know the meaning of the word irony. He thought it meant sort of like iron. He gave Windle a respectful grin. You have to think quick to keep ahead of today's international criminal, Mr. Poons, he said. Good man. Uh, you haven't uh, seen anyone else around, have you? Dead quiet tonight, said the sergeant. He remembered himself and added, no offence meant. Oh. I'll be moving along then, said the sergeant. Fine, fine. Are you all right, Mr. Poons? Fine, fine. Not going to throw yourself in the river again? No. You sure? Yes. Oh, well, good night, then. He hesitated. Forget my own head next, he said. Chap over there asked me to give this to you. He held out a grubby envelope. Windle peered into the mists. What chap? That chap. Oh, he's gone. Tall chap. Bit odd looking. Windle unfolded the scrap of paper on which was written, Ooh, ee, ooh, 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 ee, ooh. Ah, he said. Bad news, said the sergeant. That depends, said Windle, on your point of view. Oh, right. Fine. Well, good night then. Goodbye. Sergeant Colon hesitated for a moment and then shrugged and strolled on. As he wandered away, the shadow behind him moved and grinned. Windle Poons? Windle didn't look round. Yes? Out of the corner of his eye, Windle saw a pair of bony arms rest themselves on the parapet. There was the faint sound of a figure trying to make itself comfortable, and then a restful silence. Ah, said Windle, I suppose you'll be wanting to get along? No rush. I thought you were always so punctual. In the circumstances, a few minutes more will not make a lot of difference. Windle nodded. They stood side by side in silence, while around them was the muted roar of the city. You know, said Windle, it's a wonderful afterlife. Where were you? I was busy. Windle wasn't really listening. I've met people I never even knew existed. I've done all sorts of things. I've really got to know who Windle Poons is. Who is he, then? Windle Poons. I can see where that must have come as a shock. Well, yes. All these years, and you never suspected. Windle Poons did know exactly what irony meant, and he could spot sarcasm, too. It's all very well for you, he mumbled. Perhaps. Windle looked down at the river again. It's been great, he said, after all this time. Being needed is important. Yes, but why? Windle looked surprised. I don't know. How should I know? Because we're all in this together, I suppose. Because we don't leave our people in there. Because you're a long time dead. Because anything is better than being alone. Because humans are human. And sixpence is sixpence. But corn is not just corn. It isn't? No. Windle leaned back. The stone of the bridge was still warm from the day's heat. To his surprise, Death leaned back as well. Because you're all you've got, said Death. What? 
Oh, yes, that as well. It's a great big cold universe out there. You'd be amazed. One lifetime just isn't enough. Oh, I don't know. Hmm? Windle Poons? Yes? That was your life. And with great relief and general optimism, and a feeling that on the whole everything could have been much worse, Windle Poons died. Somewhere in the night, Reg Shoe looked both ways, took a furtive paintbrush and a small pot of paint from inside his jacket, and painted on a handy wall, Inside every living person is a dead person waiting to get out. And then it was all over. The end. Death stood at the window of his dark study, looking out onto his garden. Nothing moved in that still domain. Dark lilies bloomed by the trout pool, where the little plaster skeleton gnomes fished. There were distant mountains. It was his own world. It appeared on no map. But now, somehow, it lacked something. Death selected a scythe from the rack in the huge hall. He strode past the huge clock without hands and went outside. He stalked through the black orchard where Albert was busy about the beehives and on until he climbed a small mound on the edge of the garden. Beyond to the mountains was unformed land. It would bear weight. It had an existence of sorts, but there had never been any reason to define it further. Until now, anyway. Albert came up behind him, a few dark bees still buzzing around his head. "'What are you doing, master?' he said. "'Remembering.' "'Ah? Huh? I remember when all this was stars.' "'What was it? Oh, yes.' He snapped his fingers. Fields appeared, following the gentle curves of the land. "'Golden,' said Albert. "'That's nice. I've always thought we could do with a bit more colour around here.' Death shook his head. It wasn't quite right yet. Then he realised what it was. The lifetimers, the great room filled with the roar of disappearing lives, was efficient and necessary. You needed something like that for good order. But he snapped his fingers again and a breeze sprang up. The cornfields moved, billow after billow unfolding across the slopes. Albert? Yes, master? Have you not got something to do, some little job? I don't think so, said Albert. Away from here is what I mean. Ah, what you mean is you want to be alone, said Albert. I am always alone, but just now I want to be alone by myself. Right, I'll just um, go and do some little jobs back at the house then, said Albert. You do that. Death stood alone watching the wheat dance in the wind. Of course, it was only a metaphor. People were more than corn. They whirled through tiny crowded lives, driven literally by clockwork, filling their days from edge to edge with the sheer effort of living. And all lives were exactly the same length, even the very long and the very short ones, from the point of view of eternity anyway. Somewhere, the tiny voice of Bildor said, from a point of view of the owner, longer ones are best. Squeak! Death looked down. A small figure was standing by his feet. He reached down and picked it up, held it up to an investigative eye socket. I knew I'd missed someone. The death of rats nodded. Squeak? Death shook his head. 
No, I can't let you remain, he said. It's not as though I'm running a franchise or something. Squeak? Are you the only one left? The death of rats opened a tiny skeletal hand. The tiny death of fleas stood up, looking embarrassed but hopeful. No, this shall not be. I am implacable. I am death, alone. He looked at the death of rats. He remembered Azrael in his Tower of Loneliness. Alone. The death of rats looked back at him. Squeak. Picture a tall, dark figure surrounded by cornfields. No, you can't ride a cat. Whoever heard of the death of rats riding a cat? The death of rats would ride some kind of dog. Picture more fields, a great horizon-spanning network of fields rolling in gentle waves. Don't ask me, I don't know. Some kind of terrier, maybe. Fields of corn, alive, whispering in the breeze. Right, and the death of fleas can ride it too. That way you kill two birds with one stone. Awaiting the clockwork of the seasons. Metaphorically. And at the end of all stories, Azrael, who knew the secret, thought... I remember when all this will be again. That is the end of Reaper Man by Terry Pratchett, and it was read by Nigel Planer.